Hey, good morning, everyone. Would you please stand with me as we read the word of our Lord aloud? This morning's reading comes from the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. It will be on the screen behind me. Together, please. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of our Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our God, we come and ask now that your grace would be upon us and that you would do a great and powerful work that can only be credited to the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would come and comfort those who are afflicted. We pray that you would come and afflict those who are comfortable. We pray that you would take those who are high and exalted and make them low and take those who are low and humble and make them high and exalted. Take those who are strong in themselves and their heart and make them weak, and take those who are weak in their hearts and give them your strength. Come and engage us so that we do not stay here the same, but that your word interacts with us in such a way that we not only read it, but it reads us, and we are transformed by your word so that we might be obedient to Christ. Everything is for him, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, hear that again, and don't let it pass by you. Unless your righteousness exceeds, is better than, goes further than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus had just finished saying in the passage that we looked at last week. In fact, that's the verse right before the passage that Keith led us in a reading of. That's the last verse we heard Jesus say. And what Jesus is essentially saying is this. There's a Pharisee righteousness. There's a Pharisee way of doing the right thing. The Pharisees are the religious leaders of Jesus' day who are always in a fist fight with Jesus. There's a Pharisee way of righteousness and there's a Jesus way of righteousness. There's a Pharisee righteousness and there's a real righteousness. There's a Pharisee way of doing the right thing and there's a Jesus way of doing the right thing. And unless your righteousness, your way of doing the right thing, exceeds the Pharisee way of doing the right thing, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the Pharisee way of righteousness? What's the Pharisee way of doing the right thing? The Pharisee way of doing the right thing is like this. It's like when your mom comes and tells you, don't touch your brother. You know what the Pharisee way of righteousness would do? The Pharisee righteousness would go, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. And you want to kill the person, but I'm not touching you. 
right? That's Pharisee righteousness. It's, it's technically right. It's keeping the letter of the law, but missing the point of the law, missing the spirit of the law, right? It's, it's mom's command is don't touch your brother. So this is technically right. It's keeping the letter of it. But the spirit of it, the heart of it is so much other. The, the heart of mom's command is not just don't touch your brother. It's please don't bother your brother. Please actually pursue love with your brother. Live at peace with your brother. That's the heart of the command. Don't touch your brother. But Pharisee righteousness is that technically obedient. Seeking the loophole in the law. The letter of it, not the spirit of it. The bare minimum that you can get away with to escape judgment. To escape wrath. That kind of righteousness. That's Pharisee righteousness. Now, if we're honest and we take a look inside at ourselves, we're experts at Pharisee righteousness. We're experts at the Pharisee way of doing the right thing. That's the heart in us that that says something like, why would I give 11% of tithes and offerings when 10% keeps the law? Right? Why would, I, why would I give 11 or 15% of tithes and offerings when I don't get zapped by keeping 10%? Right? It's that bare minimum, technically right, loophole seeking, just enough to not get zapped by God kind of righteousness. We do it all the time. One pastor described, it's the difference when you say I'm about community and mission, Uh, of coming to church early so that you can greet visitors and make them feel welcome and engage them and be hospitable and build community versus you get to stand in the back and pat yourself on the back because I don't cause church splits. I'm all for community. I don't got a problem with anyone here. Right? It's, It's not hatching any good eggs, but making sure at least you didn't crack any. That's Pharisee righteousness. And Jesus wants to go after that thing that is so easily in us. Jesus wants to relentlessly, ruthlessly go after that thing and say to us, listen to me, unless your righteousness exceeds that, unless your way of doing the right thing is better than that, is more than that, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what Jesus does in this section of his great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at for the last several weeks, is he starts to flesh out the difference between Pharisee righteousness and real righteousness. He starts to show us through some very practical, everyday issues of life, the great divide between the Pharisee way of doing the right thing and the Jesus way of doing the right thing. In the rest of chapter 5, he's going to look at six different incredibly practical issues. He's going to talk about anger. He's going to talk about lust. He's going to talk about divorce. He's going to talk about our words. He's going to talk about retaliation. He's going to talk about our relationship with our enemies. Practical, everyday life. And through each of these practical issues, Jesus is going to cast for us a picture and a vision of here's what it looks like for your righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's what it looks like for your life to be marked by real righteousness. What Jesus is saying is, look, I've come to establish my kingdom in the world. I'm the king. And if you are a citizen of my kingdom, here's what your life is going to look like. My citizens will not be marked by loophole, technicality, bare minimum, just do whatever it takes to not get zapped kind of righteousness. No, my citizens will be marked with real righteousness. 
in such a way that they really will be seen for their good works and God will be glorified and they will be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That is the kind of righteousness I'm calling you to. And so here's what Jesus does. He starts with an easy one. At least, at least it seems easy on the surface when you first look at it. He starts with murder. Now, I say this is an easy one because this is the one we all run to whenever we want to justify ourselves. Right? For example, how many times have you heard people say, look, I'm not perfect, but I'm basically a good person. I've never killed anyone. Right? That's the standard of basically a good person. I've not killed anyone. Right? You hear that all the time. When we want to justify ourselves, we say to everyone, I'm not perfect, but basically I'm a good person. I haven't killed anyone. I've never killed anyone. That's our standard for good, righteous person. And what we're doing is we're patting ourselves on the back because of our Pharisee righteousness. We've never killed anyone. But listen to what Jesus says as he tightens the screws of that command on us. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So here's what Jesus is doing. Six times in the remainder of this chapter, Jesus is going to introduce a section by saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you. Now, six times he's going to do that. Now, let's be clear for a moment of what Jesus is and is not doing in that. What Jesus is not doing in that is repudiating the law or throwing the law out. Jesus is not saying, look, the law says this, you've heard that it was said this, but I come and say to you as if he is changing the law or adding to the law or improving on the law. We know that because the passage we just looked at last week, Jesus has prefaced this section of his sermon by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He goes on to say, for truly I say to you, not a dot, not an iota, not a little I will pass from the law. So Jesus is telling us, I haven't come to change anything in the law. So when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, he is not changing the law. That's not what Jesus is doing. So then what is Jesus doing? Though he has not come to abolish the law, he has come to obliterate the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. He has come to abolish, dismantle, destroy, take apart every little dot and every little iota of the religious leader's interpretation of the law. I have not come to abolish the law. There's nothing wrong with God's law, with the Ten Commandments, with God's requirements. But there are great many things wrong with the religious leader's interpretation of them. See, that's what Jesus has come to abolish. So he says, you have heard that it was said this way by your religious leaders, but I have come to say to you. You see, here, here's what the Pharisees did. They took God's law and they taught the people how to keep them to the bare minimum so that you could avoid getting zapped by God. That's how they saw the law. Right? Here's what you can get away with. Here's what you got to do so that you don't get punished. That's how they saw the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were landmines. 
and you don't want God to blow up on you, so here's how you stay away from getting blown up. That's their entire view of the law. Not God is holy. And his character is revealed in the law. And God is for you. And God's designed this world to work in a certain way. And these commands are given so that you can live out a rhythm of life that's right and good. And God's law is meant to lead you into joy and satisfaction. In his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He has shown to us the paths of life. Here's the way into it. None of that. It's here's how you don't get zapped. That's how they interpreted the law. And so they take the sixth commandment, for example. The sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. So what do they do? They go, piece of cake. Right? I mean, out of all ten, here's a piece of cake. You shall not murder. And so they came and said, don't murder, because if you murder, you'll be liable to judgment. Right? That's what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You don't want to be judged? Then don't murder. That's all there is to it. Easy as pie. Now here's the thing. Is avoiding getting zapped all that God had in mind when he gave us the commandments? Is is avoidance, don't get zapped, do the bare minimum to not get zapped what God had in mind. Is that the great message of the sixth commandment? When you're at home, if you're a parent, and you tell your kids, don't put your hand on the stove. Is it because you just love giving prohibitions in your house? It's just that you love filling your house with a lot of no's. And so that's why you say, don't put your hand on the stove. No. The the reality is that that don't put your hand on the stove is one no, but underneath that is a lot of what you're actually for. You see that don't put your hand on the stove is the tip of the iceberg. But underneath that, I'm not for you putting your hand on the stove is because I'm for you. I'm for your health. I'm for your life. I'm for your safety. I'm for your joy. I'm for you sticking around on the planet a little longer. That's the massive underneath part to the tip of the iceberg. So don't put your hand on the stove is the tip. But underneath that is a massive reality of not just what I'm against, but a massive reality of what I'm for. A vision for the kind of good life I actually want to lead you into. What do you think is underneath all of God's commands? You see, so when the command says, do not lie, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg says, I'm against lying. But the massive part underneath says, and that's because I'm for the truth. I'm for a world where truth dominates. I mean, wouldn't you love to live in a world where you weren't going to be swindled? or deceived, or cheated, where, where folks actually engaged, where their words actually meant what they said, wouldn't that be the vision of the good world? And, and so underneath the do not lie is a massive reality of what I'm for. So when the command says, do not commit adultery, that's the tip of the iceberg that says, don't commit adultery. But underneath is a massive reality of what I'm for, and what I'm for is faithfulness and fidelity. Wouldn't you want to live in a world where your heart's not going to be stomped on because people don't keep their word and because people cheat? Wouldn't you love to live in that kind of world? So here, underneath the command, is a massive vision of what I'm for, even though it's prefaced with what I'm against. So, when the sixth commandment says, you shall not murder, 
It's not just that God is against murder, but that in a massive underneath reality way, it's because he is for life. He is for the spreading of life in your relationships. He is for not just that you don't take the oxygen out of someone's body, but that your life breathes oxygen into your relationships. That you should be a source of life in your relationships. Not, that, not just that you shouldn't take life from people. God is for life in our relationships. And so what this commandment does is it throws open the door to the kind of relationships that God wants us to have with people. See, that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, in that, in that simple sentence, what Jesus is saying is, Jesus is taking the limited, bare minimum, technicality, loophole riddled righteousness. And he's saying, listen, I want to show you what God's law meant all along. You've heard it interpreted this way for a long time, but I want to show you what God really meant. That when God said, you shall not murder, what he really meant is that you shall spread life. You shall spread life and love in your relationships. You see, the sixth commandment isn't just, here's what you've got to avoid to avoid getting zapped. The sixth commandment is, this is the kind of relationships God wants you to have with people. You see, that's what it means for the kingdom of Jesus to break into this world. Right? Remember, that's what this whole sermon is. Jesus had come saying, the kingdom of God is here. It's announced. It's at hand. It's broken into this world. And so he says, repent. That is, turn from your old ways of thinking. What you have heard from old, turn from that. Repent. Because there's a new way. The kingdom of God is here. And Jesus is saying, the world I have come to build and create is not a world where you don't kill anyone, but you've got hate in your heart. That's not the, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. You hate everyone in your heart. You're angry as can be, but at least you don't kill people. That's not the kingdom of God breaking into the world. And so Jesus is saying, my citizens are not seeking out bare minimum righteousness where they just make sure they don't destroy one another. No, my citizens are the kinds that are trying to breathe life into the relationships they have with one another. They're trying to be oxygen in the relationships they have with one another. You see, we need to hear this because you and I so often settle for Pharisee righteousness. We look at a violent world and if we're honest, we go, we have no part of that. You hear what happens in our city night after night on the news. You read of what's going on in Israel and Gaza and all the rest. And you know what we're tempted to do? Climb up on our high pedestals with our sixth commandment in hand. We've never broken that one. And look down at this violent world of all these murderers and go, look at all those people. Because why? We would never do that. We would never come close to killing anyone. And yet Jesus was standing on a mountainside 2,000 years ago with a bunch of law-abiding citizens who had never killed anyone. And says, you need to hear the sixth commandment because the sixth commandment is much bigger than do not murder. So hear again what he said. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. 
And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You hear that? Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That is the the supreme court of their day, the Sanhedrin. You insult your brother, you're liable to the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool. That's essentially this word that meant you're worthless. You're empty headed and empty hearted. You're a waste of space. To, to look down on someone with such contempt that you don't even think they deserve to exist. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. You've never murdered. But the sixth commandment is much more than don't take life. It's that God has wanted you in your life to breathe life into your relationships. So, Sevamaru, have you ever been angry with your brother? And you have broken the sixth commandment, Jesus would say. Have you ever used those words from that tongue and that mouth of yours to cut down and destroy? Then you've broken the sixth commandment, Jesus would say. Have you ever insulted someone, called them a fool, ever flown off the handle, ever screamed words that should have never come off your tongue? Ever cursed one another out with your kids listening and watching? Ever uttered things you wish with all your might you could take back? Ever considered someone worthless? Ever treated someone with such contempt that you wish they were better off dead? Then Jesus says, you need the sixth commandment. Because what a murderer does with his hands, you have done with your heart and with your mouth and with your words. A murderer stabs the flesh. Your wounds, your words have wounded and stabbed hearts. Almost to the point that if Jesus gave you eyes to see it, you could see the bodies lying around you that you have cut down, gunned down with your words, the characters that you have assassinated with your mouth. And, and if God would show you the carnage and the wreckage around you. Perhaps there are still people out there whose wounds have still not healed from words you have spoken. And Jesus is saying to us, that kind of anger, that kind of murder, has no place in my kingdom or in the life of my citizens. Now, when I say that, there's a million qualifications I almost want to make. Right? There's, a, there's a million things that I want to set up and set in place and, and, and answer questions that would naturally come like, is there never a place to be angry or a time to be angry? Doesn't God sometimes get angry? Doesn't Jesus himself get angry? But listen to me, Samarod. As I was thinking about this, I'm struck by how harsh and blunt sometimes Jesus' words are. Like if I was Jesus' PR, I would constantly walk around behind him and go, you can't just say that and let it hang. I mean, people are going to misunderstand what you're saying. You've got to qualify that. You've got to temper that a little bit. But Jesus doesn't feel any need to do that. Right? All the time. He'll go and say, unless you hate your mother and your father, your brother and your sisters, you can't be my disciple. And I want to be like, wait, 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 wait. He doesn't really mean that. He doesn't mean hate your brother and your mother. And your... He means in comparison to the love you have for God, every other relationship could look like... Jesus doesn't say any of that. So just, okay, okay, you go ahead and you can qualify, but I'm just going to let that hang there. Or a rich man will come to Jesus and say, what should I do to inherit life? 
And Jesus will say, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, follow me. And I want to qualify the bag. Wait, wait, wait. If you say that, people will think that they get inherit eternal life by just selling their goods or what they do. No, you've got to qualify that with, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. And Jesus said, sure, sure, you can do all that, but I'm just going to let this hang here. Now, are, are there things that we need to consider, broader considerations? Are there times to be angry? Sure. Does God get angry? Does he have righteous wrath over sin? Absolutely. Does Jesus overturn tables in zeal for his Father and his God's name and his will? Absolutely. But Jesus knows that by and large, what makes your blood boil in mine is not because we're so consumed with zeal for God's name. Ten million to one, ten million to one. I am outraged not by the travesty of human trafficking, but because someone cut me off in traffic. 10 million to one. 10 million to one, my fights have not been for the honor of God's name and the wickedness of sin. 10 million to one, my fights have been where are we going for the holidays, your house or mine? 10 million to one, my anger, your anger, has nothing to do with God's will being done, but my will not being done. 10 million to one. And so Jesus seems okay to just let it hang there. If you're angry with your brother, you are liable to judgment. If you've insulted your brother, you are liable to the council. If you've said, you fool, you are liable to the hell of fire. And Jesus is saying, the sixth commandment does much more than call you away from murder, but from the murderous rage that lies just beneath the surface. I'm not touching you won't be enough. Your righteousness must exceed the technicality, loophole, bare minimum righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. See, don't murder is just the tip of the iceberg. And when we get that, all of us realize we have fallen miserably short. We have all fallen miserably short. Right? Some of us get this real easy because we know we're characterized by anger. Some of us have been fighting that part of our personality and our life and that sin that's been in us for a long time. And there's probably a long, bloody path behind you. A trail you've left of all the people you've gunned down and all the words you've said and you can't take back. Some of us are total hotheads. We're hot-tempered. We've got short fuses. We throw things. We explode in the moment. We just let everyone have a piece of our mind as though we were given some kind of right to always say what we're thinking. We explode. And then there's others of us right now who almost want to tap ourselves, pat ourselves on the back. I'm not like that. You know why? Because we don't explode, we don't blow up, we clam up. And we sort of simmer. Right? We don't have any firecracker moments, we're crockpots. We just let it just boil a long time. No one's ever going to see it. It's just going to simmer for a long time. Uh-huh, that's fine. I'm never going to forget that ever. Right? <laughs> that's us. So there's no explosions, no firecrackers, but we've got this, this boiling, simmering going on inside. The reality is, in one way or another, whatever your expression of it might be, all of us have been angry towards our brother and our sister. What is Jesus trying to do in showing us this? Is he trying to get us to feel completely defeated, like we've utterly messed this thing up? Yes. That's exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to get you to see that you are utterly defeated. 
and you have completely messed this up. Because only then can things begin to change. Listen to this quote from a pastor named Ray Ortland. And reflecting on this passage, he says it well. He says this, It's hard for us to see ourselves. It's painful, but we must. If we think we've obeyed God because we haven't done the really bad things, we are not ready yet. The way into His kingdom is not avoiding disobedience. The way in is failure so bad, all we can do is fall to our knees. Then our hearts crack open to the love of God. Then we start changing. The Lord's purpose today is to destroy our smug status quo. Then He can love us the way sinners need to be loved. On terms of His powerful grace, let's be reduced to to need together now. It's the only place of blessing. That's what God wants to do. He wants to level you down so that you've got no illusions left of, but I, I didn't kill anyone. To the point that you realize you're bankrupt. And in that place where you confess you've completely blown this. You're an utter failure in this. Rather than judgment you find that's the place of blessing. Because have we not already said that his sermon starts with. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who finally get to the place where they admit. I'm bankrupt in this. I got no resume on this one. I got no righteousness of my own. If you're there, then you're ready to be a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. And if that can happen, you're ready to do what Jesus actually wants you to do. Because the sixth commandment is not just don't take life. It's in your relationships. Whatever state they might be in right now, as much as it is possible for you, breathe life into those relationships. You see, the command is not just don't take life, it's I want you to spread life and love in your relationships. And so listen to what Jesus says next. This is verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, And the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's shifting to say, not only is the sixth commandment that you should not murder, it's that you should instead seek life in your relationships. And so Jesus says, if you've got a brother or a sister, hear me, because he gets very practical. If you have a brother or sister in your life, and your relationship with that person is strained, then Jesus is saying, don't just not murder, but seek life in that specific relationship. Seek reconciliation in that relationship. You have a relationship that's strained? Then hear Jesus say, seek reconciliation in that relationship. And he wants to highlight both the necessity of that and the urgency of that. The necessity, you must do this, and the urgency, you must do it right away. And so he gives two quick illustrations to highlight both. Both the necessity of reconciliation and the urgency of it. The first one is this, 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So here's what Jesus says. He wants to highlight the necessity of reconciliation. And you see what he does? He shifts the pronoun to you. 
Till now, it was whoever is angry with his brother, everyone who insults his brother, just generic, all of us. Now he makes it personal. He says, you. Let's talk about you right now. If you are at the altar and are about to offer your gift and you're reminded of a brother who has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go. So here's what he's saying. You, here's the equivalent. You're sitting at church and imagine someone was preaching to you about this stuff. You're sitting at church and you're about to give your dollar into the basket or you're about to come and take communion. Here you are ready to worship God and give Him your offering and receive your communion, whatever it might be. And the Spirit of God reminds you of someone. You're not thinking about them, but God has been thinking about them. And so He reminds you. He reminds you of a strained relationship in your life. And the Scripture is saying, leave. Leave church Go and be reconciled with that person. Right away. Right? This is, this is necessary. You must do this. Right? This is what it looks like for your righteousness to be real righteousness. Not Pharisee righteousness. Because if you're Pharisee righteousness, is there anything more religious than church? Than communion? Than, than Sunday morning? And Jesus is saying, I'm not looking for Pharisee righteousness. Pharisee righteousness says, you'll have a thousand strained relationships, but you'll keep coming on Sundays. You'll keep taking communion and dropping your dollars in as if nothing is wrong. And Jesus is saying, I'm looking for real righteousness. So, with respect, I would say, you would keep God waiting before you keep this relationship waiting anymore. You, you would keep God waiting it's as if God is saying to you, don't worry, I'll be here when you get back. You go make that right first. No more games. No more Pharisee righteousness. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He's highlighting to you, Seven Mile Road, and you hear him again. Unless your righteousness exceeds Pharisee righteousness, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And so real righteousness means you are quick to pursue reconciliation. You must do this. There's a necessity to do this. And he gives you a second illustration to not only highlight the necessity of reconciliation, but the urgency of it. You must do it right away. So he says, come to terms with your accuser while you're still going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. And so now in the illustration, you are not sitting in church anymore. You're headed to the courtroom. You owe a debt that you can't pay. And your accuser is on the way to court. And Jesus wants to highlight how quickly, how fast you have to get at this. That he says, while you're still on the, on the courtroom steps, find a solution. Find a solution before it's too late. Make peace where there's still a peaceful way to make peace. Do whatever it takes before things explode and get out of hand. Because once you get in there, oh, and you can't pay the dent that then things will go out of control. So while you are still able to make a solution in this relationship, do it. Because otherwise, you're going to be handed to the judge and to the guard and put in prison. And now if you've got a debt and you're in prison, are you ever going to pay that debt off? Are you ever going to work another day? You're, you're going to be there forever. So there's an urgency to this and there's a necessity to this. Do this right away. Here's the point. Real righteousness doesn't just say, I didn't murder. Real righteousness pursues life in all relationships and seeks to necessarily and urgently reconcile wherever possible. 
that we should make every effort to reconcile strained relationships that we have. Now hear me, just one practical word about that. Will it always work out? No. You won't always be able to tie a bow around it and say, here's a perfect story. But that's okay. That doesn't mean that you've got to live in a prison of that relationship. Right? God hasn't promised us the results of our attempt towards reconciliation. But God has called us to be faithful in the attempt of reconciliation. Right? I know this because of two things. One, Romans 12 verse 18. This is a great verse. Here it says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Isn't that great wisdom? If possible. That is that God knows in this broken, fallen world, it's not always possible. So all your relationships won't be reconciled, if possible, and so far as it depends on you. You do your part. You leave your gift at the altar and go. You do that part. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Are you in a prison if you make an attempt and the other person flat out denies you? No. Insofar as it is possible with you, live at peace with all. Right? We know it's not always going to be a pretty bow because we know Jesus. Jesus hurt no one, offended no one, and there were lots of relationships that were not reconciled with him. But insofar as it depends on you, we are to pursue reconciliation. That's real righteousness. Right? Why is that? Because if you're a citizen of the kingdom, that's what you saw the king do. We do that because that's what we saw our king do. You and I are angry, murderous life takers. I never killed anyone. I murdered God. Your sin, my sin, murdered God. In a thousand ways, we have broken the sixth commandment. And yet he gave his life to reconcile us to himself. We had a debt we could not pay. Jesus paid our debt for us. That's what the scriptures teach. Come to terms with your accuser. If you've got a debt you can't pay, Jesus came to terms with us. He took our debt and paid it for us. And so what we're called to do is do for another what Jesus has done for you. So Samarod, let me finish and say this. Has the Spirit of God brought someone to your face? Brought someone's face to your mind? You're sitting in church. You didn't think of that person coming in. But right now, the Spirit of God has brought that face to mind. Then God would say to you, make that right. Maybe what obedience will look like for you right now is on the way in, you had a vicious fight in the car. Maybe obedience for you right now, real righteousness would be when we close our eyes, you and your spouse step out into the backyard and you make it right. And then you come back, God will still be here. Maybe obedience for you right now is that when we close our eyes to pray, you just grab his hand or grab her hand and you squeeze it and you say, we need to make this right or I'm sorry. Let's talk this through. Maybe obedience for you this week will mean that before you leave here today, before you walk out that door, you text someone and set up a meeting. Or this week you write that letter. Or you make that phone call. But that even now, You're not settling anymore for technicality, loophole, bare minimum righteousness. But that you want the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And as God initiated and pursued you, so you're going to initiate and pursue this strained brother or sister. 
And if we do that, then we will be salt and light in this world. We'll be distinct from this world and redemptive to this world. We'll be like something the world has never seen. A people who are not just not taking life, but a people who are spreading life in all their relationships. Because that's what God really meant when he said, you shall not murder. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit now without limit and without measure. That you would take us from the step of righteousness to real righteousness. From external obedience to an internal transformation of the heart. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot bind our own wounds and heal our own pain. You've got to come and do that. You've got to come and show us that where we had an unpayable debt towards you, you did not count that against us. When we offended you, you gave your life as an offering for us. And I pray that you would come and bring that into our hearts so deeply that it would change us and move us to be a people who don't just keep the letter of the law, but obey the heart of it also. Because we are motivated not just to escape God's zap, but because we are compelled by your love. So come do that work. Come make us ready to obey. Give us, O oh Lord, the courage and the wisdom and the strength we need to obey whatever your spirit is calling us to do right now. We ask this in Jesus' name.